a different accent indeed. <laughs> a very good morning to you all. Uh, thank you once again for having us. Uh, uh, we deeply appreciate your friendship, your encouragement. Uh, thank you to all the families that have been involved in uh, looking after us. Um, and we always look forward to visiting uh, GPC. So this morning we're looking at uh, Psalm 68. Uh, when you read commentaries, they will tell you that Psalm 68 is connected to when the Ark of the Covenant uh, came back to Jerusalem. Um, and so what you read in Psalm 68 is the, uh, are the celebrations and um, the, the pronouncements, the affirmations, all to do with the greatness of God. Uh, as the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. Um, and I want to read from uh, verse 18 uh, right to the end. Uh, I think the last verse is verse 35. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan, I will bring them from the depths of the sea that your feet may wade in the blood of your foes. While the tongues of your dogs have their share, your procession, God, has come into view, the procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. In front are the singers, after them the musicians, with them are the young women playing the tumbrils. Praise God in the great congregation. Praise the Lord in the assembly of Israel. There is the little tribe of Benjamin leading them. There the great throng of Judah, Judah's princes. And there the princes of Zebulun and of Naphtali. Summon your power, God. Show us your strength, our God, as you have done before. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. Rebuke the beast among the reeds, the head of bulls among nations who delight in war. Envoys will come from Egypt. Cush will submit herself to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty voice. Proclaim the power of God whose majesty is over Israel whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. This is the word of the Lord. And so from what we understand so far from Psalm 117 uh, on Friday in the evening and yesterday we looked at Psalm 67, we can confidently say as Christians, as the people of God, 
as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, and there's the local congregation at GPC, we have a missionary calling. Uh, God has a mission for his church. And going back to Genesis and all throughout the Bible, God has always, God has always called his people to be a blessing to the nations. That is what it means to be missional. That is what it means to live a missional lifestyle, always looking outward as opposed to looking inward. God has a mission for his church. And so we exist not only for ourselves to know and enjoy God, but also so that others may know and enjoy God. We don't live for ourselves. We, we live for others. The gospel belongs to the world. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. When you consider your journey of faith, the truth of the matter is that you are here because of the church's missionary calling. You're here because someone had the call of God and they obeyed and they shared the gospel with you. And we have inherited that calling. And we now have the privilege to join God in what he's doing in the world. Isn't it amazing that God actually invites us. If you're a believer this morning, God invites you to participate in global missions. He invites you to do that which only God himself can do. And that's the reason why whatever God will ask you to do, you have to do it God's way. You have to do it his way because only God can do it. So we now have the privilege to join God in what he's doing in the world. There are three things that we must do as part of our missionary calling. And I want to look at that uh, this morning, uh, really trying to be as practical as I can as we talk about, so what do we do with all that God has been saying to us? But before we do that, I want to look at the meaning of Psalm 68. Uh, it's one of the very complicated psalms, and the reason why I was drawn to it is really from verse 18. Uh, but the moment you understand that this was a celebration when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem, and all these pronouncements and affirmations are to, all to do with the greatness of God, uh, then you begin to make sense even of the jargon as you read Psalm 68. So we saw yesterday that in the book of Psalms, uh, and this is Psalms overall, and especially in the immediate Psalms leading to Psalm 67, there is a theme on the nations, uh, and that theme has been built slowly. This vision for the nations and God's concern, God's passion for the nations. And Psalm 67 is like the climax of that theme building up, where the psalmist shouts out his hope that all nations, all the nations of the world, will worship God. And he says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And he's describing their future reality. 
And you only have to go to Revelation in order to understand what is going to happen then. And Psalm 67 ends with that hope in verse 7. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Not only Israel, not only the church, let all the ends of the earth fear him. Psalm 68 continues with the all nations theme by showing us how the all nations hope will be realized. And this is the central message of Psalm 68, I think, that the all nations hope that is expressed in Psalm 67 will be realized by the coming of the victorious divine king, talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the message of Psalm 68. The coming of the victorious divine king is what will bring all this together as the nations come to worship God. Psalm 68 calls us to celebrate the greatest victory in the history of the world and the glorious homecoming of the conquering hero, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why the psalm is described as a kingdom hymn and a celebration of God's campaign to restore shalom on earth, to restore peace, real peace. And here, David describes God using military language. He, he writes about God as a victorious military leader who takes his throne in Zion. Mighty conqueror who scatters his enemies and the righteous rejoice. And you read that from verse 1 to 6 of Psalm 68. And the psalmist recalls God's past actions when he led his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness and his triumph over his enemies, verses 7 to 18. The congregation of Israel is therefore called upon to worship, to worship with singers, with musicians, and the mention of various tribes of Israel. And you read that in verses 19 to 27. And the psalm concludes with a prayer for God's strength and power to be made known, again, not only to Israel, but made known to the nations. God's power and strength made known to all the nations, acknowledging that God is the source of all strength and peace is the only one who can make this happen. It describes God's power as surpassing earthly kingdoms and calls on all kingdoms, all kingdoms of the earth, to pay homage to him. So the composer of the Psalms wants us to see that the all nations hope, this, this theme that has been building up, the hope for the Messiah, all nations hope and the hope for the Messiah are one and the same thing. The fact that all nations are going to rise up and worship God is connected to the coming of the Messiah, Messiah King Jesus. The divine king who will bring about the worship of God from all nations is the Messiah. And this goes back to Psalm 2. God had made the nations his heritage. The ends of the earth are his possession. The ends of the earth 
are his possession. The way we see this in Psalm 68 is that God is described as the divine warrior. He is the divine warrior king who has come to defeat his enemies. But the main thing here in Psalm 68 is that God chose Jerusalem. He chose Mount Zion to be his dwelling place. That is what is going on as you read in verse 15, talking about the mountain of Bashan. Bashan was another mountainous area that was close to Jerusalem. And historically, it was known to be fertile. It was productive. Uh, It was a great mountain. It was a great place to live. But here in verse 15, the mountain of Bashan is personified as being jealous of Mount Zion. Because Mount Zion, as we read in verse 16, is the mount that God desired to take his abode. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is the place that God had chosen to make his dwelling place. And so as you read on in the psalm, you notice that the divine king has been victorious. In fact, he has settled in his place on the throne, Mount Zion. And then there is this victorious procession. People celebrating and singing and ululating. And that's verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. This is part of the procession. And there is a big celebration surrounding it. Singers and musicians and the people of Israel. They're coming to worship God in Jerusalem. But notice something special. It's not only Israel that is part of the celebration. Look at verse 31. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. And these are the nations. These are Gentile nations coming to celebrate together with Israel. Uh, We already know about Egypt, and Cush is another name for Ethiopia. So verse 31 is really talking about Egypt and Africa and these nations coming to celebrate together with Israel. And these countries, these nations are both outside of Israel. Yesterday we talked about these nations that are foreigners to the covenant of God, outside the covenant. And here... They are worshipping the God of Israel in verse 32. All kingdoms of the earth sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. It's the all nations hope, once again, as we saw in Psalm 67. And what Psalm 68 envisions here is what the book of Revelation describes in Revelation 7, verse 9. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The worship of God from all nations 
from all tribes, from every corner of the world, is the hope that runs through the entire storyline of Scripture. And that hope is realized through the victory of the Messiah who comes to die and he rises again from the dead. And that's Psalm 68. But I want us to see that Psalm 68 is really about Jesus. This is based on something that Paul says in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, when he talks about the purpose and mission of the church, guess what he does? He quotes Psalm 68 verse 18. The you ascended on high passage. Paul says that the ascension mentioned in Psalm 68 was in fact fulfilled by Jesus in his resurrection from the dead and ascension to his heavenly throne. That's when Jesus led his victorious procession and he gave gifts to the church for the church's mission. Paul connected Psalm 68 to Jesus and therefore we must do the same thing. Connect Psalm 68 to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The concluding overall message of Psalm 68 in light of the whole Bible is that the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the victory of Jesus, is how all the nations of the world will come to worship him. That's how Psalm 68 fits with Psalm 67 and builds up on that all nations hope and all nations theme. And when it comes to our mission, we always have to hold these two together. On one hand, the hope of all the nations worshiping God. That is our prayer. That is our concern. That is the reason why we go. Our hope that all the nations will worship God. And yet on the other, the how of the gospel. How is this going to happen? Well, it will take Jesus. It will take the Messiah. And you cannot separate the two. Another way to say it is that the goal of Revelation 7, uh, the passage I read just now, when God is worshipped by all the nations, is accomplished through the mission of Matthew 28, when Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples. And so the goal of Revelation 7, when multitudes upon multitudes gather around the Lord of Lords to worship, that will happen because of Matthew 28, when we go. Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations, ends up in Revelation 7. All nations worship God. And I know we, we, we talk about uh, this as though it's just simple. You know, when we say, listen, the reason why we have confidence as we go is because we know how it's all going to end. How is it going to end? Multitudes upon multitudes worshiping the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And what a joy for us to be used by God to go into the world in order for the nations to rise up to worship. Make disciples of all nations. And this ends up in Revelation 7. All nations worship God. 
The church's present disciple-making labor is what leads to the end time worship of God from all nations. In other words, missions exist for the sake of worship. The reason why we do missions, the reason why we go to the nations is in order for the nations to worship the Lord our God. Missions exist right now because we are not yet there. And yet, we have the privilege to know how it's all going to end. And so the question for us this morning is, what is our role in all this? What is it that God is calling us to? How do we practically step into our missionary calling with a renewed passion and energy? And I want to suggest three things for us this morning. The first one is that in order for us to step into our mission and respond to what God is saying to us, we must be a contrast people. And to be a contrast people means that our church, our community here must be different from the world that surrounds us. And this is part of our missionary calling that goes back to the Old Testament, to God's missionary calling on Israel. We saw yesterday that God made a radical promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth through him. And then later, in the book of Exodus, when God rescued Israel and established them as a nation, God restates his promise to Abraham to be accomplished through Israel. He says to Israel as a nation, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Israel had a priestly calling for the sake of the nations, and that priestly calling went together with their holiness. They were to be different. They were called to be contrast people. They were set apart for God's purpose. And when you saw Israel next to everybody else, when you saw Israel as a nation next to another nation, they were to be different. Our challenge today is that as Christians, often we look like the world, we sound like the world, we behave like the world. We even think like the world. We do our politics like everybody else. We spend like the world. And yet the call here is the call to be different. They were set apart for God's purpose. When you saw Israel next to everybody else, what you saw was difference. This is a different kind of people. And one theologian says that the contrast was seen in what they displayed. They were to be a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes you. We always encourage each other by saying, if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. We are a showcase to the world, showing the world what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. This was one important purpose of God's law. God's law, his instruction, his word, 
was meant to guide Israel as a contrast people. You're not like everybody else. And when we say that, we're not saying that Christians are perfect. Well, we are sinners saved by grace, and we are the children of God. And we are called to be different. And as you look at the law of God, first, God's law was meant to lead Israel to embody their values. Uh, as believers, as a church, we, we have a particular value system. And that value system is very different from the value system of the world. You see, the value system of the world is always upside down, where important things are taken as unimportant. Temporary things are treated as though they are eternal. And yet we need a value system that is the right way up. And so for Israel, God's law was meant to lead them to embody their values. The nation of Israel, like God's original plan for humanity, existed to value God more than anything else, to fear God more than anything else. God's greatest commandment, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. And then the second greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And those are the two greatest commandments, the two highest values. And I always say, loving your neighbor as you love yourself is tantamount to ripping the skin off your body, and you wrap that skin around that other person. And all you wish for yourself, you wish for them. Love God and love people. All of God's other laws and commandments are simply extensions. They are applications of those two values. And because what you value most will come through in the way you live, under the direct and radical supremacy of God, everything is from God and by God and for God. Everything is ultimately truly about God. And God wants his people to show that in their lives. And that is what the Christian worldview is all about. Every sphere, every aspect of your life, no stone unturned. The worldview covers all that you are. You look at the world using lenses that are totally different from the lenses of the world. And that's why we have to keep asking ourselves, how different are we from the nations that God is sending us to? And secondly, God's law was meant to lead Israel to challenge the surrounding idolatry of the nations. And you can see how this is related to embodying the highest value. A people who is radically centered to go on God and who genuinely care for others, such people stand out. They stand out. They are light to the world, salt to the world. They stand out. They are visible. Their faith and their testimony is explicit. They are a contrast people. They are countercultural. 
for most of us, our struggle is we want to be like everybody else. Just like Israel, we want to be like everybody else, so give us a king. And yet God calls us to be a contrast people, a countercultural people. And that contrast stands against, it, it pushes back, it, it opposes the worship of lesser gods. And this does not mean that uh, we do this militarily. If anything, like I said in the morning, salt adds flavor to your food, doesn't it? And in order for it to add flavor to your food, you apply salt sparingly in moderation, isn't it? If you pour the whole salt shaker into your meal, then you're going to throw it away. And perhaps when, at times when society or our communities eject us, reject us, the reason is because we dumped a bag of salt on them and they reacted. And yet, sparingly, Christians are supposed to be contrast people. You push back against evil. That is what light does to darkness. And that is what salt does to rot. If we want to take the good news to the other nations of this earth, then we need to be contrast people. One of my concerns as I receive missionaries is often that they would have come from congregations where they were not contrast people. And therefore they struggle to be missionaries. The quality of our community here, our shared God-centeredness, our love for one another and our love for others, that has to be the foundation of our mission to others out there. So that we're not trying to do out there what we could not do here. We must be a contrast people. The second thing we must do if we're going to step into missionary, you know, our missionary calling is we must join the advance of the gospel. And this needs to be intentional, right? God is on the move. The gospel is on the move. Thousands upon thousands are coming to Christ. And the invitation is we must join the advance of the gospel. And the invitation is such that we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to reinvent anything. We're not trying to be on the cutting edge of anything. Because at times, we complicate calling. We complicate missions and what it means to respond to the call of God. We are only gladly participating in the work that was started a very long time ago. And we read that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus empowered his apostles to be his witnesses to the ends of the world. And he invites us to join in. We see that already being fulfilled in the book of Acts. And so we're not the first ones. And starting in chapter 13 of Acts, we see the apostle Paul going on his first missionary journey, again intentionally responding to the call of God, leaving everything behind to go to the nations. And the ends of the earth, like we said yesterday, includes you and me. 
This is how far the gospel has already gone. We are the ends of the earth. We're here because the gospel grabbed us and God brought us to himself. We are the ends of the earth. We are the nations. We are the Gentiles who are outside the covenant of promise. And therefore, we are invited to join the advance of the gospel. And we see this already being fulfilled. But what does this mean? Well, as we read in Acts and Psalms, well, this means global missions. It means going to nations that are not like us. Because I know churches that have struggled with, well, do we send missionaries? Do you, well, we have enough problems at home. Well, the call from God is for the nations. It's for the tribes. It's for the Gentile nations out there. And God calls us to go to them. So it's not about us justifying, not going, not sending by simply saying, oh, you know, we have, well, we need to take care of problems back home, yes, but we also need to respond to God's call to go to the nations. Why? Because we know how it's all going to end. All the nations are going to stand up and worship the Lord, our God. And then the last thing. Whatever gives us the passion and energy to go into global missions has to be something that will sustain us when we get there. There's some missionaries who think that, oh, you know, they're struggling with their Christian life and they're not even sure, do I love Jesus? You know, maybe they're struggling to organize their time, this imbalance between work and family. And they think, oh, you know, if we go to the field, things will get sorted out. Well, the love for Jesus that sends you to the nations should be able to sustain you. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. The only thing that will truly lead us and keep us in the work of global missions is knowing that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You are worthy. Jesus is the one who does the serving. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And so it's one thing to read that Jesus is worthy. And it's another to love this Jesus. Love him so much that you want others to love him. Love him so much that you want others to hear about this Jesus. And that's why at the end of the day, evangelism is really going out there to tell the story of what God has done for you. Love this Jesus so much that you can't wait to tell others. And you can see the complication, don't you? If you can't wait to tell your neighbor who is so close to you, chances are you're going to struggle to go and tell it to the nations. In other words, you have opportunity to practice. Practice in your own neighborhood. Practice at school so that when God calls you to go to the nations, you're not doing something for the first time. You have been at it 
since you came to know the Lord Jesus. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, do we love that Jesus is worthy? Do we delight in his glory? Is Jesus our highest treasure? Do we love him above all else? Do we love him so much that we have allowed him to inform all that we do? How we think, how we process, how we spend, how we relate. Do we love him above all else? And that's the difference maker. The person of Jesus. The person of Jesus Christ. There is no talk of missions without Jesus. Nothing else really matters but Jesus. It's about him. We want him. We want others to have him. We love him more than anything else. And we want the nations to love him more than anything else. Come, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you help us to do just that, to love you above all else, to put you before all else, and to obey you above all else. And may your name be glorified, even as we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.